This morning we're going to be in the book of Jeremiah. So I'd encourage you to grab your Bible, turn to the book of Jeremiah, specifically chapter 23. This, the scripture that James read this morning from Isaiah chapter 11 almost mirrors what we're going to look at in Jeremiah 23 today. Now, we're not really going to look at the Isaiah passage, but you can see that multiple authors, not just in the, New, in the Old Testament, refer to Jesus as a branch or a root or um, a shoot even specifically coming from the lineage of David, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Last week, we started our series in Shadows of a Savior, and we started in Genesis way back at the beginning. If you weren't here with us, we saw actually the first glimmer of hope, of redemption, of salvation, even in the midst of the curses that God gave as a result of sin in the world. He said that the devil would be crushed, but someone... A man from the line of Eve would be crushed as well. Everything that has been written in the Old Testament, even the New Testament, even what Jesus said about himself has been about Jesus. It's been about him. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is God with us. He's the one who's come to set us free. Remember, we talked about Philip last week. He heard two words from Jesus. Two words is all it took for him to recognize that Jesus was who all of the law and the prophets were talking about. So we have the incredible blessing of the fullness of divinely inspired scripture to guide us into all truth. And yet we walk around the world and you walk around in your life, within the supermarket, in your job, maybe in your home even, and there are a lot of people who still refuse to believe that this is the truth about who God is and who Jesus is. Is that you? Do you believe the testimony about Jesus, not just from the Old Testament prophets, not just from the guys who walked this earth with him, but do you believe the words about him from his own mouth? Your eternity hangs in the balance on if you do or not. So the story from Genesis chapter 3 showed us kind of in a subtle but neat way, how God actually seeks after his people. Even after they had sinned, Adam and Eve had sinned, God was walking through the garden calling out for them to come and be with him, to be near him. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says that Jesus partook of flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil. This is, this is good news. When Jesus rose up from the grave, he conquered death and dealt the death blow to the head of the, of the serpent, which was prophesied all the way back in Genesis. You can find life and purpose in Jesus the same way today. He has conquered death on your behalf if you would believe. So as we are in chapter 23 of Jeremiah, my hope today is that you'll not just see him as the promised savior, come to take away the sins of all who believe, that you would see him as your savior and that you would believe. Now, I want to read from chapter 23, verses 1 through 8, but let me kind of set the stage. So kind of maybe glimpse back to chapters 21 and 22 for just a minute. There in those passages, you can probably tell pretty quick if you're glancing at them, that those were pronouncements of judgment and doom on the last several kings of Judah. God was explaining through his prophet Jeremiah here, he was explaining what he expects from those who rule over God's people. And he counts the four previous kings 
as evil. They were not fit to sit on the throne of David. And he directs their attention back further to another king, to King Josiah. Now, if you remember, Josiah was a good king. And it's, he's very unique in the sense that it's, the Bible says he took throne, the throne when he was eight years old. That's pretty incredible. When he was 26 years old, the book of the law was found in the temple. It had been misplaced, hidden. It hadn't been read from. And so as they began to read it to King Josiah, the the story goes that he mourned. He tore his clothes. He was upset. He realized that the people had been forgetting the ways of God. And so... He led Judah in righteousness and tried to reform the nation. He led them immediately, as soon as this was read to him, he called to them to pull down their idols, the poles that they had set up in worship of false gods, pull them down and burn them. Because there's only one true God that they ought to worship. And so because of his good kingship, and his righteousness and his obedience to the Lord, God stayed his hand of judgment on Judah, and Josiah did not witness any of it. Unfortunately, the guys that came after him were no better than the ones that came before him. Jeremiah 22, verses 15 and 16, they say how he was righteous. It says that he advocated for the cause of the poor and the widow. Those who came before him were not this way. Those who came after him, unfortunately, would also not be this way. And so in chapter 22, the current king of Judah was told by Jeremiah to hear and obey the words of the Lord, to do justice and righteousness, to protect the innocent, and to punish the evildoer, the oppressor, and to do it just like his father Josiah had done. Do it the right way, he said. So in essence, Jeremiah, as a prophet, and what many of the prophets did, is he was holding out in his hands a promise and a threat. On behalf of God, this is what he said. And you can look, if you're looking in chapter 22, verse 4 and 5, he says, For if you would indeed obey his word, here's the promise, if you would obey his word, then there shall enter the gates of this house kings, who sit on the throne of David, riding in chariots and on horses, they and their servants and their people. He's saying, if you would obey, prosperity will come. But then in verse 5, he gives a threat. But if you would not obey, if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house shall become a desolation. No other name higher on which to swear than the Lord. And he swears on his own name that this will happen. This is the promise and the threat. He says, you do this and it will not go well for you. But if you obey, it will. Prosperity is coming. But fortunately, we can see that it didn't go that way. Look at verses 8 and 9 of chapter 22. And many nations will pass by this city and every man will say to his neighbor, why has the Lord dealt thus with this great city? And they will answer, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and worshipped other gods and served them. That's what happened. The prophets of old, like Jeremiah, they confronted wickedness and they warned of judgment, but they also proclaimed God's truth with confidence and held tightly on to hope. They preached without compromise about the threat of destruction for disobedience. They weren't worried about what those kings and leaders might say about them. They just spoke the truth. 
We have the opportunity as believers in our world today to be, in essence, like Jeremiah. To speak the truth, regardless of what other people think of us, regardless of what that means with the world around us. We speak the truth, but we also hold tightly on to hope like Jeremiah did. These Old Testament authors, specifically the prophets, they also reminded God's people of the promise of a lasting eternal kingdom found in the distant hope, as Isaiah said it and as Jeremiah says it, of that righteous branch that will be raised up for David. Many of the Old Testament's authors refer to the Messiah as a branch, like Jeremiah does in chapter 23. So we come to the beginning of this chapter, and we'll read it, but I want you to notice the use of the term shepherd in regards to the leader of leaders of Israel and Judah. Think about that as we read chapter 23, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll have a word of prayer. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and have driven them away. And you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the people people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these shadows of a Savior that we can look to and be encouraged that you are the one that we have been looking for. Since the fall, we've been yearning for a Savior, someone to come. And Lord, we can see it all the way back in Jeremiah 23 and Isaiah 11 and many other passages, Lord, that Jesus is that Messiah. He is that righteous branch. And so I pray, as Jason prayed earlier, Lord, that we would learn of you today, that you would reveal yourself in power in this place because of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the word shepherd here, um, they would use that word in reference to kings, to leaders. The New Testament uses that word as a synonym for the word pastor. And it's not good news <laughs> at the beginning of 23 for what's happening in Israel and Judah. And it's not good news for the shepherds who have been leading them wrongly either. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4. He says, Woe to the shepherds who scatter the sheep of my pasture. Therefore, verse 2 says, The Lord of God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you've scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. 
Uh, does this kind of send shivers down anybody else's spine? What a, what a bad place to be. God has watched the kings of Judah fail time and time again, but he would never fail. Their God would not fail them. Now, basically what God is saying is, look, you've done my people wrong. I'm going to deal with you. Now, kids, let me ask you this question. Have your mom or dad ever said anything like that to you before? Like ever been in a situation where you've messed something up and they have to deal with the immediate results of that problem. But in the process, they say, let's fix this. I'm going to deal with you later. Yeah, does that send shivers down your spine a little bit? It did when I was a kid. That is not something you would want to hear. This is what God is saying. He doesn't say, I'm going to deal with you. He says, I will attend to you. It's the same thing. This is what God is saying. Kids, do you look forward to the time when your mom or dad attends to you? No, you don't. In fact, you probably know what you're in for. You know what's coming and it it ain't good. This is what God is saying to the leaders who have not done what he's asked. Judgment was coming and God was going to attend to them personally and properly. The King James Version says, Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings. Yikes. Here's the key though. It doesn't just stop there. It doesn't stop with just the threat. Now, it's, it's there. There's judgment He says, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings. If you don't obey these words, as we looked at in chapter 22, your house will become a desolation, empty, gone. There won't be anyone to sit on the throne. So there's plenty of judgment here, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't end there, and there's hope in that. The last words about the house of David goes further than any threat to confirm the promise that God gave him concerning the permanency of his kingdom. And we see that back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This is the covenant that God made with David through the prophet Nathan before David had ever even sat on the throne. In verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, he says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16 of 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Again, these are words to David before he ever sat on the throne. God's covenant with him. So fast forward now to where we're at in Jeremiah 23. We've got generations of bad kings sitting on the throne. And God's saying, I have to judge this. In righteousness, I must judge sin and wickedness. And so he does. God was going to see to it that his promise was fulfilled even despite all the judgment that these kings had earned. There's hope nestled in here in the midst of these guarantees of hard judgment. Verses 2 and 3 and 7 and 8 say that there is hope that an obedient remnant of God's people will be gathered together again in their own land. God was going to lead them back to their fold where they was would prosper. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Verse 5 says that there's hope that God will install a king who will reign and rule with wisdom and justice and righteousness throughout the earth. Verse 6 says that in the days of this righteous branch, his people will be saved and will dwell securely. Because of him, all God's people would dwell, the, the King James says, in a place of refuge, in peace. But I don't think this is just talking about peace like 
peace with neighboring cities or even peace with their enemies. I think this is talking about peace with God himself. Look at the end of verse 6. He says, And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Could this man be any other than God's man? The Lord is our righteousness. Could, can an unrighteous man be the author of righteousness? No. Only God the Father himself can be the author of righteousness because righteousness comes from him and from him alone. God the Spirit convinces sinful man of their need of righteousness, reveals it, and leads them to it. And then God the Son imputes it to his people through his obedient life, his atoning sacrifice, his victorious resurrection, and also his now eternal life. All of this was accomplished when Jesus came in the flesh. We talked about that last week. He came in the flesh, in person, in real life, and he came as the Lord, our righteousness. If you are to be righteous, it's only because you believe that Jesus is righteous in your place. In your place. It can only be because Jesus is your actual righteousness. So if we're, if we're counting on our own goodness, maybe our own righteous deeds, we're as bad off as the Jews were 2,000 years ago. We're no different. Paul refers to people that say, I want to try to make it on my own. And this is, in essence, what these kings were doing. I don't need your wisdom, God. I will do this myself. And Paul refers to these kinds of people in Romans 10. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. He says, for I bear witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do you you hear what he's saying here? He's saying that self-justification through works of the law, that's not Christianity. Self-righteousness, trying to be good on our own, is not Christianity. It's idolatry of self. Saying, I can do it. I don't need you. This can't bring real righteousness. Because idolatry is the epitome of being anti-God and therefore anti-righteous. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 1, chapter chapter 1, verse 30, that if you are in Christ Jesus, he has not just become wisdom of God, he has, but not just that, or the sanctification of God, or even the redemption of God, Christ has also become our righteousness. This is huge. So in essence, think about this, Jeremiah and Paul are saying the same thing, just about 650 years apart. They're saying the same thing. Jesus is your righteousness. Jeremiah said, he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Paul said, Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes Christ is our righteousness. So the question this morning, is he your righteousness? Or are you still trying to convince God that your righteousness is enough? Centuries before his birth, Christ is foreshadowed here as the one who would reconcile God's people back together. The one who would be their righteousness and the one who would rule the earth in perfect justice, casting out fear. Those are the two things that we see in Jeremiah chapter 23 that God is prophesying through Jeremiah. He's going to bring God's people back 
And he says, verse 4, he says, Neither shall any be missing. <laughs> Every one of God's people will be there. And secondly, that there will be a king who will rule in righteousness and in justice and he will rule perfectly. All of this was going to come about because despite the wickedness of the kings of Israel and Judah and despite the wickedness, friends, that's still found in our hearts today, God always keeps his promises. I mentioned earlier that several authors of Scripture, specifically Old Testament but also New Testament, refer to Jesus as the root or the branch. Turn with me in your Bible to Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 12. This is Paul quoting Isaiah. He says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the, will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, look at those last few words, you may abound in hope. Jeremiah's message to the people of Judah, to the kings of Judah specifically, and to God's people even today, was that threat and a promise. Obey God and it'll go well for you. Disobey God, it won't go well for you. He will attend to you. But there's hope in this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Believing what? Believing that Christ is our righteousness. That the Lord is our righteousness, as Jeremiah says in chapter 23. Believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Christmas is a time of hope. Advent is an expectation of the coming of Christ. And so we celebrate that this, this season. We celebrate that by looking at shadows of the Savior, of how he's prophesied, as Jason was saying, incredibly. There's no other person that this could have happened through. It must be God the Son. It would be impossible otherwise. And so as Paul says in Romans fifteen thirteen, I want to say to you this morning, may you be filled with the joy of the Spirit so that you too may abound in hope. If you've not trusted in Christ as your righteousness, today can be the day. It doesn't come because of a magical prayer that you pray or a magical aisle that you walk down. It comes by believing the truth about Jesus Christ in your heart, him changing your life, and then you living for him each day. And you can do that even today. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That means that we, even if, even if we had the ability to, that obeying the law perfectly wouldn't be the end of righteousness. We would still fall short. And so we thank you that Christ obeyed perfectly in our place. And now it's, it's not a complicated procedure. It's not a difficult equation. Lord, it's just simply belief. It's setting our eyes, setting our affections on something besides ourselves, on Jesus Christ himself. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are listening this morning who maybe have not believed. They have not trusted in Christ as their righteousness. Lord, may they cry out in repentance and faith with hope this morning. Lord, we, we wait in expectation of Christmas, knowing, Lord, that you didn't just come in a manger Lord, you came born to die. And that you didn't just die, Lord, you rose again. And so now we celebrate your whole life from birth to resurrection. And now as you constantly intercede for your people, Lord, we are in awe and we are thankful for it. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts today, even as we sing now in Christ's name. Amen.